Morning. So have you ever done a timeline of your life? Some of us have really long ones. Um, <laughs> it's a very interesting experience to chart everything out, look at patterns, look at times when you were wandering, times when you were close to the Lord, um, things that made you who you are, God's care for you, sometimes even maybe before you even knew him. It's a wonderful uh, exercise to try to do. Some of you have asked for a timeline of Paul's life, so here you go. This does not cover everything, and the dates of many events are approximate. Uh, Notice that the dates are A.D., so to know how old Paul is at these different dates, you just subtract five years since he was born in 5 A.D., Um, Interesting to look at uh, kind of the big picture. Uh, Converted at uh, A.D. 35 when he was 30. And we are now at the beginning of the time when he is imprisoned in Caesarea. So that's 57. So about 20, 22 years of ministry, uh, hostility, um, travel, relationship with people that he loved. I'm sorry to spoil the ending. (laughs) Since it's already up here, you see that he has about, we we think that he was probably executed by the Romans in 68 or so. So he has about 10 years of life left, 20 years of ministry behind him, about 10 years ahead. But for much of that time, you see that he'll be imprisoned imprisoned in Rome after Caesarea, imprisoned again in Rome, and then finally finally executed. Um, So here we are with the end of chapter 22, rather, and some pretty dramatic stuff has been going on, so just to kind of get us all back in the flow of what, what we've been talking about, Paul and his group of friends arrived in Jerusalem after that long third missionary journey, And they are greeted by a mob of angry Jews who uh, accuse him of teaching against the Jews, against their laws, against the temple. You'll remember that they drag him out of the temple. They beat him within an inch inch of his life, but he's rescued by a Roman official who sends uh, some soldiers down to get him um, out of the out of the mob. And these, these Roman soldiers are stationed in a fortress right next to the temple, this fortress called the um, Antonia. And then when they carry Paul up the steps um, to the, uh, a spot, two, two, a stair, uh, two stairs above the um, level that the crowd is on, uh, he realizes, oh, this is a good vantage point. I can talk to these people who hate me so much. And so there he stands. Um, You see the crowd is still pretty angry. I don't know if you can see it. He is still in chains, and he'll be in chains for a lot, for a long time, for the rest of his life. He asks the commander for for permission to speak, give him permission to do so, tells the very moving story of meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he gets to the sentence that encapsulates the mission on which God has sent him. He says, 
God told me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, the crowd erupts with fury when they hear this. The commander, the Roman commander, is mystified. He, he cannot figure out what is going on. Why are these guys so furious at Paul? Thinks he must be covering something up. And so in order to get the information out of him, he decides he's going to have him flogged. And at that point, uh, Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. And the guy says, oh, sorry, um, not going to do that. And that saves Paul, at least for now. There's, let, me, let me just tell you a little side note. We think, not everybody agrees about this, but we think that the book of Acts was probably written about 63 AD, which is uh, about six years after the events we're talking about in chapter 23. Um, at this point, obviously, the Roman Empire is the ruling entity. One of Luke's purposes in writing this book is to demonstrate that in the eyes of Rome, Christianity was a legal religion, actually a sect of the Jewish religion. Um, and you look back into, you think about Luke's gospel, do you remember, if you, if you know anything about the, the story that Luke tells about Jesus' um, trial before Pilate, Pilate himself says, I, I find no fault in this man. I don't, I don't see anything that makes him a criminal in the eyes of the Roman Empire. And then in Acts, over and over again, the Romans say, don't see anything about Paul that makes him a threat to the empire. Why, why does Luke have this interest in somehow showing that the Romans did not consider Christianity a threat. Well, you know who the emperor is now? Who? Nero. Does he ever hear of an epitome of a bad guy? You know, in, so he's writing in 63, Nero... Nero, by 64 and 65, just a year or so after this book is written, Nero just goes on a rampage against Christians. Terrible uh, atrocities committed against Christians. Luke sees the handwriting on the wall, and he is hoping to avert that persecution. It, it blossomed anyway. But that's part of his purpose. So let's go back to our story. Roman commander decides he's going to find out what is with this Paul guy. He orders the Sanhedrin to assemble, brings Paul to stand before him. Now you may remember that the Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling body. I'm interested in Luke's description of Paul's demeanor as he stands before the Sanhedrin. He says, he looked straight at the Sanhedrin. Uh, other versions say things like, he looked intently. Um, he was earnestly beholding them. What, what attitude does, does that suggest to you? Hmm? Okay, confidence, confidence, belief, knowing you have the truth, unafraid, 
Spiritual strength, good. Kind of openness. You know when you look straight at somebody, you look straight into their eyes, you really have something that you want to communicate, don't you? We don't know whether Paul had been a member of the Sanhedrin before he began persecuting Christians. There is some evidence that he might have been. Although, think about this, it's been 20 years since he was, if not one of them, at least closely allied with them, right? Surely, he recognizes people in this group, even though 20 years have gone by. Can you imagine what it would be like to face these angry, hostile men? I don't know, I, I picture this as a fairly physically close kind of setting, that there wasn't a lot of distance among them. These men are, they're zealous, as Paul has said, but they're just, they're zealous for the wrong thing. These are men with whom he probably once schemed to figure out ways to track down and destroy Christians. Can you imagine their faces? Can you imagine the, the hatred that they must feel? He was one of them. And they probably feel kind of personally betrayed because he's, he's changed sides, right? He's switched allegiances, at least from their point of view. And what does he say? My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now wait, is he claiming perfection here? I don't think so. In many other places, Paul makes it clear that you know, he realizes that he was so completely misled in his persecution of Christians earlier. Don't you think he's saying that his conscience is clear? And isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to say? Sprinkled through his letters to the churches in the New Testament, there are similar statements like this. My conscience is clear. I've lived according to truth. When I've, when I've made a mistake, I've acknowledged it, and I know I'm forgiven. That kind of integrity is why Paul is able to say in his letters, live the way I've lived. Follow my example. Isn't that a, a beautiful thing to have such a clear conscience that you can make statements like that? Good standard for us, isn't it? So you'll talk at your tables about what happened after Paul makes this statement. Let me just say that all the information we have about this Ananias, the high priest, is that he was a lousy guy. He, um, he is described by the historian Josephus as a great hoarder of money who even took the tithes or the money that belonged to the priests by violence. Not a good guy. So you'll talk about the uproar that ensues here and how this commander again rescues Paul by um, taking him into the Antonia Fortress barracks. We don't know anything about what it might have been like in there for him, but um, granted to say that he, he probably was pretty lonely. Um, wondering, I mean, over and over again, what's next? What's next? 
And here comes my favorite part of this chapter. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now we've seen sim similar experience of, experiences of Paul's earlier in Acts. In Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth. He's meeting opposition and we're told in Acts 18, 9 to 10, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. And do you remember last week when we were reading um, chapter 22, Paul tells the, the crowd the story of his experience of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he says that afterward he was praying in the temple in Jerusalem, fell into a trance, saw the Lord speaking, and he heard Jesus say, Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem, Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. And we're going to see a similar experience in uh, Acts chapter 27. Do you see, as you look at these verses, do you see any similarities among them? What, do you, what kind of threads do you see repeated? Okay, good. So it gives them a sense that there's forward momentum ahead. And he's going to be with them through it, isn't he? Anything else you see as a kind of a pattern, at least through a couple of these? Don't be afraid. Take courage. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, good. Okay, I have a job for you here, and then you can move on. Encouragement, right? Protection. Look especially back now at the first one, the one that in, in our chapter today. Starts with take courage. You know, when Jesus was walking on the water and the disciples saw him coming and they thought he was a ghost, he said the same words to them, take courage. So when you read take courage, what do you assume about how, how Paul's feeling? He's scared, Right? You don't tell somebody, don't be afraid, if they're not afraid. And look again at the rest of this verse. It's really an assignment and also a promise, isn't it? He says, you must testify about me in Rome. Okay, that's an assignment. And it's also a promise because Paul wants to do this. Paul has been talking about how he wants to go to Rome. And so the fact that um, Jesus tells him, you will go to Rome and speak for me uh, and about me, as you have been doing. And isn't it also a kind of an affirmation? Kind of an affirmation that what you've been doing in Jerusalem, that's good. I approve, I appreciate, I, I love what you've been doing for me. But the part of this verse that just speaks to my heart 
is that phrase, the Lord stood near him. The Lord stood near him. Think about that. It doesn't say that Paul saw Jesus, does it? At least at this point. He, it doesn't say that he is visible to him. He definitely heard his voice audibly. Paul had a clear, tangible sense of Jesus standing near him, standing with him. Now, how do you think that affected him? That clear presence of Jesus. The Lord stood near him. Is it possible for you and me to have as clear a sense of the presence of Jesus standing near us as Paul did that day in that prison? Is it possible for us to hear his voice that clearly? Maybe not audibly, but clearly. I wonder how you hear from God. For me, it's often in the middle of the night. Um, in Psalms, the writers often mention that they feel God's presence at night. For example, in Psalm 16, we read, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I like that. I like the words there, that at night, the Lord counsels me. And my heart instructs me. Somehow he speaks into my heart what he wants me to hear. Um, sometimes I hear from God right after I wake up. You know, there's a kind of a gray time right in there when you wake up. At least for me there is. You're lying there in bed, and you're really kind of half asleep and half awake, and your mind is, is quiet, and sometimes that's when I hear something from the Lord. I know some people hear from Jesus in the shower. I know some people hear from Jesus when they're hiking. Do you think you can hear from Jesus in a dream? Don't you think he can just speak to you about any way he wants? In any circumstances he wants? How, how do we invite his presence? How do we intentionally hear his voice. I think there's some things we can do that kind of open our hearts and our minds to receive from him. One of these is the disciplines or the practices of the Christian life. Um, at this church this year, we're looking at the practices which contribute to our becoming more like Jesus. When we want to become adept at something, we practice certain skills, right? Uh, I have some grandchildren who in a, just terrifies me. They're about ready to start driving. And they got some serious practicing to do. But when they have practiced enough, practice, practice, they're driving, and you know this from the way you drive, I hope, your driving becomes kind of, uh, a lot of it is kind of automatic. You don't really have to think about that, about all of the things you do anymore. You don't have to think about putting your foot on the accelerator. You don't have to think about putting your foot on the brake. 
It's the same pattern if we, if we desire to practice the presence of God. As we practice some of the things that um, will help us be more moored in him, become a little more automatic. If you'd like to learn more about these practices, practices there are lots of books out there. One of them that I would recommend is called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. I'm especially interested in his choice of words there, celebration. You know, we think of discipline as maybe something that we would not particularly seek out. But as you read about his uh, interpretation of how these disciplines, how these practices work for us, it really is something to celebrate. Um, And I, I especially commend to you the practice of being in Scripture. Scriptures are food. And in the practice of prayer, can Jesus speak to you in any place, in any situation? Of course he can. Of course he can. But I submit to you that it's much easier to hear him if we have made a habit of being immersed in scripture and being close to him in prayer. Then we're more alert to his presence. Um... Gordon Smith says, we cannot recognize the voice of Jesus unless we are immersed in scripture so that the contours of our heart and minds are ordered and enabled by the word. It doesn't mean that he can't speak at any time that he wants. It's just, it's hard for us. I don't know if cannot might be too strong a word, but it's hard for us to recognize the voice of Jesus if we haven't been listening to him isn't it? And by the way, there's a workshop at this church on prayer on Sunday that is entitled, interestingly, uh, Hearing God's Voice. So if you're interested in that, stop in the church office and sign up. Talking about prayer suggests another of the spiritual disciplines that I think is so significant, and that's silence and solitude. Jesus doesn't yell at us, does he? usually whispers. And it's hard to hear if we haven't found places and times when we can kind of withdraw from the busyness so that we can, we can listen, so that we can invite him to be speaking to us. You know, it's, it's only in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years that I've even been familiar with this idea of spiritual disciplines. And I, I, I regret that I didn't get on that wagon earlier because it's made a big difference to me to, to understand these, these ways that we can um, tailor our lives to be more attentive to the voice of Jesus. Another way to listen to the voice of Jesus is through people who speak into our lives. That usually implies close relationship, honest, real relationship. I have soul friends that I trust to be the voice of Jesus into my life. Do you think Jesus can even speak to you through a stranger who's sitting next to you on a plane? Do you think Jesus can even speak to you through somebody that doesn't know him? Oh, yeah. He's not limited. You know, he's not limited in the ways that he can speak into our lives. 
And maybe even amazing, more amazing, is that he can use you and me as his voice into somebody else's life. Sometimes we, we kind of downplay our own significance, our own role. We realize that other people have such an important role for us, but do we realize who we can be to somebody else? That the words we can speak to our friend or the words so we can speak to the person sitting next to us on the plane can be the words of truth. After all, Jesus has promised to be in us if we're followers of his, hasn't he? So we shouldn't be surprised at this phenomenon that he can speak through us. Makes me think that every morning before we leave our bed, we should invite Jesus to speak to us, through us, give us a listening heart, offer our hearts to him so that maybe the words that we speak to other people can be the words that that person needs to hear. And then, if you've offered that to Jesus, you need to pay attention, right? Expect Jesus' sightings. One of the best examples I can think of of all of this stuff is what happens here at Spice around our tables. You know, studying scripture together, praying together, listening to one another, speaking truth to one another. Don't you think that the Lord is standing near even at this very moment? Even at this very moment. Can we hear him? Can we sense his presence? And if so, have have we responded to that? Consider these questions. How might you order your life so that you become tuned in to the presence of Jesus as he stands near you? Tuned in. Getting the frequency. And how might you train your ear to hear his voice? It's an amazing thing. The presence of Jesus with us, the voice of Jesus speaking to us. Let's pray. Father, our world is... um, very consuming. We're so easily swept up in events and schedule and people, ourselves. And many of us in this room hunger for a clearer sense of your presence a quieter place to be with you, the ability to hear your voice. And so, God, I I pray that you'd help us to make that hunger something that we really try to feed, something that we pursue. Thank you that you call us that you seek relationship with us that is 
real and deep and mm, consistent. And we ask that you would go with us now as we go to our tables. I pray for our conversations together that we would be encouragers of one another, that we would recognize our individual um, value even here as we talk to one another. Help us to have the courage to speak truth and the courage to hear it. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.